Um, this morning, we're in our final message of 1 Timothy. Um, it's kind of sad. I, I've really enjoyed being in this book. Um, so we're going to be in chapter 6. This is the final charge. That's what I've titled the message, Nothing Complex. But it's the final charge that Paul gives to Timothy as Timothy's wrestling with the, the struggling church in Ephesus to help them, uh, both Timothy as a leader, understand what he needs to do, but also to help the church understand how they are to respond in, in a, a day and age where Christians are, are struggling. It's, some of it's because they're new in their faith, that Christianity is almost brand new at this point in one sense, but also because there's persecution and things that are going on within the church that uh, make it difficult and, and just to, to, to be getting things right. And we saw that early in the letter. Paul talks about these uh, false teachers that had come into the body. He actually hits these, this idea of the false teachers again here in chapter 6, but he does something in a very unique way to issue this charge on how the, a believer is supposed to respond in the face of difficulties. And so I think that this is a really important passage for us. We're going to pick up in verse 11. Um, if I have one like, like editorial comment here, and it's, it's kind of a regret, um, we didn't have time to really unpack all of Timothy like I would love to have done just where the timing of things were. So, so we've done kind of some big grasp of large portions of text. And I think sometimes to our benefit and then sometimes to our detriment. Um, and, and so this morning is, to me, a little bit of one that's to our detriment in, in the sense that we're not going to cover everything here um, because there's still so much more that we could explore. But I think that's also where the Lord has us at some points in our church life. So I'm not apologetic for it, but I, I do want you to know there's, there's internal struggles. And, and this is where... When, when we go through books, and like we're about to, to take a journey on the, in, in, through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to do kind of the same thing. It's going to be some big snapshots. I want to encourage you with this thought. Go back on your own and read these texts that we're in. It, it's certainly a helpful for you to hear the messages, but I think you could gain even more if you go back and allow the Holy Spirit to both take the messages that you've heard, but then also to speak to you through the text as you're continuing to read through, through, through that. So as coming up, we're going to go through Mark. You ought to be in Mark's gospel. We're actually going to be streamlining everybody into to that study somehow um, through grow groups. Uh, so, so just expect that too. It's going to be a, a, like a piece here in the public setting, if you will, in, in the large gathering, as well as in the, the kind of privacy of the grow group. So with that said, let's pick up uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, and we're going to read uh, through uh, verse 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life you were, uh, to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
Wow, what a great passage. So this morning, we're going to be looking at this final charge, which really boils down to this idea of fighting the good fight of faith. But here's a little bit of the the, con, uh, the, the context of what Timothy or Paul's teaching to Timothy. If you notice back in verse 11, um, Paul begins with this phrase, but as for you. That uh, idea right there, it reminds us that the context is a contrast. So, so we, I, though I didn't read it this morning, you can go back and read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6. And what Paul is talking about is these false teachers, these heretics that have come into the church and are, are teaching. And here's what they're, they're doing. They're teaching um, in, in such a way that they're causing controversy. Here's some of the descriptions. They're conceited. They long for controversy and quarrels. They produce controversy, envy, dissension, slander, and evil dissensions. Those people had crept into the church, and that's the fruit of what they were teaching. The church was actually in a state of, of conflict and mess because what these false teachers had brought. And, and ultimately what they were saying is, if you're going to have godliness, uh, or, or God, uh, gaining riches is a means of godliness. It would sound a lot to us like what the prosperity gospel is today. That, that they say, if you're going to really understand the gospel, it means that you're going to gain earthly wealth and earth, earthly blessings. And, and Paul says specifically, that is false teaching. And what that does is imagine if somebody all of a sudden is coming into wealth, it means that those who are not feel like they're doing something wrong and there's controversy and there's dissension and there's not peace in the church. So the fruit of these uh, heretical teachers is a bad fruit. And I want to remind you of this. What does the fruit of the Spirit consist of? It's not dissension, it's not envy, it's not slander, it's not divisiveness. The fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Those are the things that Paul is contrasting. Now, uh, here in, the, in this text in 1 Timothy. Now, he doesn't use that same list, but we're going to see some things that he does uh, share uh, positively in a minute. So, here's the interesting thing. So, so, what he is saying, but as for you, you Christians, you faithful, Timothy especially, lead out in these things, I want you to do this. Look back at, at the, the text. He says, flee these things, pursue righteousness, and here's what he lists, these, these virtues. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. So those virtues, and I'm going to talk about those a little bit more in a moment. But he says this, this is the charge, fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. As I was thinking about that, one of the first things that came to mind is, why do we need to fight the good fight of the faith? Well, I think that every one of us, at some point in our Christian walks, we, we face possibly two things, maybe more, but I think these two things are at, at the center of what we struggle with. The first is doubt, and the second is unbelief. There, there's, there's times in our lives where we can struggle with a doubt of who Christ is, what, what, his, what he's doing in our lives. There's unbelief that can creep in about how, things, how the Lord is doing things in our lives. We might call those things as simple a word as distress that we just dis get distressed over the things of the world and the things that are happening in our lives, and we begin to doubt the goodness of God and what our faith in Christ produces. And, and Paul that, recognizes that. And he wants to encourage Timothy and the church to fight the good fight of the faith so that doubt and unbelief don't overwhelm them. 
Now, here's another piece of this, and, and I think I'm going to give you five reasons, um, well, just in just a minute. I want to I talk about two things that are, are our enemy. When we're fighting the good fight of the faith, there are two things that tend to be the enemy in that. The first, Mason, this is where I really appreciate you doing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, because uh, Martin Luther, who penned that uh, hymn, he was very sensitive to spiritual warfare. He, he really wrestled through the, the understanding of a very real enemy that is present in our lives. That enemy we call who? Satan or the devil. And I, I don't think we often like make a, enough of him. I don't want to overextend his power, but I think that we need to remember that he, there is a real enemy in the spiritual realm that has presence in, uh, in the uh, spiritual realms that wage war against us. That goes back to Ephesians 6 and understand why we need spiritual armor. Here's what's interesting to me. I was thinking about the enemy and his schemes to undermine our confidence in Jesus. That's always what he wants to do. He wants to undermine our confidence in who we are in Christ. So I, I was thinking about this. How many of you have read uh, C.S. Lewis' The Screwtape Letters? Several of you have. Okay, good. It's, it's a really good read. It's actually kind of a fast read. I would encourage you to do it. Um, essentially what it is is you have Screwtape who is uh, writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and there are two demons talking about this believer and, and how this, this guy has come to faith, and they're trying to undermine his faith. That's, that's all these letters in, in the, the book are about. And so here's an interesting thing that Lewis captures, and I want you to hear this. It's a short statement. He says, um, he uses screw tape to say this to Wormwood. Do not allow any temporary excitement to distract you from the real business of undermining faith and preventing the formation of virtues. I was like, when, when I started thinking about that, and I, I walked through that quote, I was like, that's exactly, like he's captured exactly the essence of what Paul is getting at here in, Tim, in, in 1 Timothy. Fight the good fight of the faith. Do these, put, make sure that you're pursuing these virtues what does he list those virtues as? Again, let's go back in verse 11. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. See, if we are going to cling to those virtues and prevent the enemy from distracting us, we've got to pursue those well. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9, it says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Folks, it's, it's no doubt, the scriptures make it clear, we have a real enemy. That real enemy is prowling around, seeking how he may devour us. We must pursue godliness. So let me pause right there for just a moment and ask a real practical question. How are you doing pursuing those things? Are those virtues like bubbling up because that's your pursuit? Or are you getting sidetracked because of doubt and unbelief? Because I can guarantee the enemy wants to create that doubt and unbelief. And if you're not being disciplined enough, if you're not being intentional enough, you won't pursue, you'll just give away. See, it's one or the other. We're either pursuing those things or we're giving away, giving way. We don't just stand still. 
We, we, we don't. That's not how we're wired to be. Because if we stand still for a moment, we're going to go one of the other ways. So our responsibility is to pursue these virtues, these good things that are uh, produced in us because of the work of the Spirit in the, in the lives of believers. So that's the first enemy. Um, here's, uh, w- let, me, let me add this to it, first of all, as we look at this. Not only we pursue those good things, we also have to put off the sin. Does that make sense? So, so when the Lord convicts us and convinces us that things are wrong in our lives, we must discipline ourselves to say, I'm not going to be satisfied with those things. Colossians is really clear about that. In, in chapter 3, it says, put off all these things of the flesh, and then later it's put on these things that are ours in Christ. If you don't understand those things, I really encourage you to go look at that passage in Colossians because it's a wonderful picture of how we have that responsibility to cling to Christ rightly, putting on these things as, follow, as his followers, but then to put off these things too because we have a tendency to, to let those things foster in our lives or continue, which brings us to the second enemy. The first enemy is Satan, the devil. The second enemy is self. See, each of us wrestles with the old nature, don't we? <laughs> we don't like to admit that, but each of us has a, an old nature that rears its ugly head. If we're, if we're followers of Christ, that old nature, we're constantly struggling with it. That's why Paul writes in Colossians, put off those old things, because we are being renewed in who we are in Christ. And so, Putting off those things means this, that we wrestle with the tendencies of our old flesh, which are too easily satisfied with temporal matters. Do you find yourself in that boat? Too easily satisfied with the temporal matters. I do. I do. I I can get easily sidetracked from being disciplined in my spiritual development because I like the temporal things. It's just where we are. And and I'm not saying that it's necessarily bad but to to have temporal things. But we've got to be careful to make sure that we're not, um, like what I would say is obsessive about the temporal things. Because that's, again, where the false teachers were. So can I give you, like, one thing that just drives me crazy about myself? I am a busy guy. And you all have heard me say this quote if you've been around here before. Um, out of Gordon McDonald's book, um, I can't remember the title of it now, Pursuit of, no, anyhow, I can't remember the title. There's a, a quote, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. It, it, busyness is part of what we deal with. I, I told somebody the other day, I wish I could figure out how to manufacture more than 24 hours a day. The problem is if I did, I'd fill every one of them up still, right? Because I get so busy. But here's the thing. If I'm honest, I can do this. What am I doing? What is it? I'm, I'm giving the thumbs up again and again. It, yeah, I should be doing like this. My phone's sitting down here on the chair, right? We, we scroll on Facebook. I, all of a sudden, in social media, it's like I'm lost in that. And 30 minutes later, I'm like, where did time go? I wanted to look at one post, and it like, de- it like derails me into other things. Am I the only one? Okay, so, so it's like, not that it's a, social media is a bad thing, 
But if I'm not disciplined and intentional, all of a sudden I've added into something menial, something that doesn't produce eternal fruit in my life, and my time, because I should be redeeming my time, has been anything but redeemed. And, and I'm not picking on social media. I think there's value to it. But I think we've got to also say, how much time have I spent doing this versus time doing this, spending my time in the Word, meditating on the Word, memorizing the Word so that my life is eternally changed because the Word bears fruit in my life. See, that's where I become my own worst enemy because I don't discipline myself well to bear out the promises of Scripture that say if I will discipline myself, it will bear good fruit. So it's not just Facebook and social media. It could be any number of things that we end up actually wasting our time with that produce a barrenness within us. We need to be careful with that because there's promises of God that come through the strength that we uh, gain when we meditate on His Word, when we renew our minds, when we spend time in Christian fellowship with one another. The products of those things reduce the degree to which we are enemies of ourselves and enemies of the Lord's work. So I want to encourage you to, to not succumb to those um, temporal matters. So, as I was thinking about this, one of the things I, I also thought was, how do we respond to the idea of fighting? Uh, as I started thinking about this, part of me wrestled with this concept because growing up, what's the one thing that I got in trouble for consistently with two brothers? Fighting. R yeah, Preston and Royal, like, yeah, we, we can in trouble all the time. Um, I'll never forget, um, my, my brother was six, I, I, so he was my youngest brother, I was about ten. Um, we were playing out in the yard in the snow, and we were sledding down the ne neighbor's driveway, and I threw snowballs at them as they were going down the, on the sled, and they came up and said, don't do it again. Well, what did I do? I did it again. Then my youngest brother, he was a, he was a big-time fighter. He was pretty tough. He still is kind of that way. Um, but he came up at me swinging, and I was like, nope, pop. And right in the mouth, knocked his front tooth out. Fortunately, it was a baby tooth because he was just six. But it was like, you know, that was the constant thing in our lives. We were fighting all the time. And our parents were like, stop fighting, stop fighting. And I think that there's part of us, when we come to this passage, we're like, we resist this urge to fight because it's been given a bad, like, perspective. Because fighting shouldn't be something that we as Christians do. But Paul talks about the need for us to fight the good fight of the faith. So there must be something positive to fighting. So why are we resistant to fighting? One, I think it's because we've been told it's bad. Two, I think we resist fighting because fighting takes training. And training takes intentionality and energy. And I think we live in a world where we think that everything can be instantly uh, brought to us or instantly developed, and we don't want to take the time to really work hard at things. We think, oh, Christ has changed our heart in regeneration, and then he'll just make us mature. And we don't want to take the time and energy to, to put in effort to be working with him in our sanctification. We just want him to do it immediately. But fighting the good fight of, of the faith means that we have to, to train. It means that we have to give effort. So here is, uh, 
I, I want to give you five reasons why I think that the fight of faith is a good fight and it's worthy for us to engage in. Because if fighting is not negative, like this passage says, it's a good fight. Why is it a good fight? First of all, by engaging in this fight, who do we fight? The enemy. An evil one who, who uh, and by fighting, we prevent the consequences of sin in our lives from overwhelming us as we fall prey to his temptation and his uh, pursuits of us to trip us up in our faith. It's good to fight evil. It's a good thing for us to fight the evil one. And when we see him working or his, the things of his uh, power that he fosters in our lives coming about, we need to fight and resist him with all the power that we can as we walk in Christ. The second reason, it is good because God, who is always good and always working good, is the one who is at work within us. See, if, if we're going to fight the good fight of the faith, we need to remember that God is at work. That's part of what he does in us. And he is always good, working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So as we're fighting the enemy and fighting the good fight of the, of the faith, we remember that God is at work and his work is good in us. The third reason that the fight is good, it demonstrates the, the believer's reliance upon the goodness of God. See, not only do we remember the goodness of God, it's also us to rely upon his goodness. I don't know about you, but my tendency is to try to, to do too many things in my own power, in my own strength, in my faith. And remembering that I am unable or I am weak helps me to rely upon God's goodness as I fight the good fight of faith. Of the faith. Does that make sense? So, so building and reaching in and, and clinging to him is what that's about. The, th the fourth reason, uh, well, let me back up. Um, I want to say this, because leaning into God's goodness rather than my own abilities is not natural to, to any of us. Our tendency is to rely upon ourselves, but recognizing that God is the one who's at work in us is essential, and it shows our relationship and dependency, beyond, uh, dependency upon Christ in salvation. Um, the fourth reason. Fighting the good fight of, of the faith also requires humility. Again, that's an unnatural part of who we are before our conversion. So, as unbelievers, our tendency is to, to try to work and strive to prove ourselves as good or righteous, and we may not necessarily use those terms, but we're trying to do it based on our own strength. But when we respond to the gospel in humility, we're relying upon the work of Christ. And that is the essence of faith, admitting that Jesus is the one who has overcome sin, and we are unable to do that. So it's relying upon his atoning work, that which provides us forgiveness and redemption from our sin. So operating in humility is another part of that. And then the fifth reason, it is a good fight, is because ultimately it glorifies God, right? When we're fighting the good fight of the faith based upon God's goodness, because we're resisting evil, overcoming the enemy, because we're responding in humility, it says all of these things are different in us, and it's not elevating self, it's glorifying God. 
And as we glorify God, Jesus is made much of, we find grace, we find strength, and we find the power of who we are according to our salvation being born out in us. So, here's the question. How do we rightly fight the good fight of faith? See, if, so it's a good fight. How do we do that rightly? Well, he answers this. I, I think, let's go back to the text. He says in verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. And he says this, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. That word, take hold, it, it actually emphasizes the importance of an eternal perspective. Um, this is where, when I was reviewing my notes this morning, that, that perspective of Job 19 jumped into my mind, that, where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will see him again face to face. And, and he talks about this restoration of the body that's going to be done away but, uh, here physically, but a new body that's going to be given. And he's going to have this promise of meeting the Lord. And we, we've sung about that this morning. That, that this temp, these temporal matters are not what really drive us as believers. It's the hope of heaven. It's the hope of being with Christ in, in heaven again and knowing him and seeing him face to face. That is amazing. And, and so taking hold of this eternal life, it emphasizes the, the process and the point by which we have an eternal perspective. See, I, I think, again, contrast that, that Paul's driving us to here is the temporal things that the heretics were teaching about those, the, like, gaining wealth means you're godly. No, it doesn't. He's disproving that again and again in this letter. And he's saying, grasping a hold of the eternal things is what really provides us an eternal perspective. And too many, live, too many of us live in just the, the moment of now. We forget about the hope of glory, Christ in us, the hope of glory, what he's producing as we're being sanctified to the point of glorification. And, and so we end up struggling in this good fight of the faith. So how do we get this eternal perspective? I'm going to share it. I, I do it. Y'all may, are y'all ever tired of me doing this, my definition of motivation um, from eighth grade? Does anybody ever get tired of hearing that? I love doing it. It's a, just a nod to Coach Eskridge. It was actually his definition, not mine. But um, here it is. Motivation is the stuff. Now, now, get what I'm getting at here. Motivation. What causes us to like, grasp onto the eternal matters of the Lord? It's our motivation. It's what we clearly desire about Him. So motivation is the stuff that permeates. I love that word. It goes all through us. Motivation is the stuff that permeates our entire being. When we have, now get these terms, a clear, vivid picture in our minds. Now this is about what we want to do, but what we want to do as believers, what motivates us is the picture of our life with Christ in glory. See, this clear, vivid picture in our minds of what we want to do in an, in an intense, burning, all-consuming desire in our heart to fight for it. You hear why I like that? Because I think it like relates to me too many times I don't have a clear, vivid, all-consuming desire in my heart to fight for the things of God. I, I don't fight the good fight of the faith well enough because I lose sight of that clear, vivid picture in my mind 
of where the Lord wants me. And that's what Paul is driving Timothy to. He like, have this clear, vivid picture. Understand the eternal things and cling to that. Let that be what motivates you. I don't know about you, but that's, that's just not how I am all the time. I wish it was. How do we get there? That's, that's the question. How do we get there? We look at the Scripture. We work at these things to be renewed by Christ's work in us. So here's, here's what he says. I think this is the second part of this. Um, in, in verse 12, he says, So this is what you're called to do. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. See, part of this is clinging to the picture and then sharing that confession with one another. There's two groups that we primarily, well, actually, there's three groups that we make that confession to. The first confession is to Jesus. When we confess our need for Christ, that, that good confession is saying, Christ, I need you. If I'm going to have an, a picture of eternity that's different than what the world offers, I know that I need you to be my Savior. And I will confess that I'm unable to save myself. I'm going to depend upon your grace and your mercy through your sacrifice on the cross, through your resurrection, beating sin and death, so that I, by trusting in you, by grace through faith, might have life. That's the first part of that good confession. The second part of the good confession is that we say that to the church, to one another, so that we can encourage one another about our good confession. We cannot be healthy in our faith life if we're operating insulated from the church body. God has called us to be members of a church body. I know that y'all value that because you're here. Okay, it's simple. But part of the value of that is to be ministered to by others as the, the Holy Spirit's gifting them to serve and to minister yourself to others with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has empowered you with. That's part of what it means to be living in this good confession with one another because we need to be encouraged. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that we need to be encouraged all the more as we see the day approaching. That's why we gather, Hebrews 10, 24, 5. And that's a paraphrase, obviously, of that. But we continue to meet as the habit of, uh, of some is, to be encouraged in our faith. The third group that we make confession to is the world. When we confess before the lost people in the world, they will see something different about us. And that may be a hard place for us to land, to say to people in the public eye, that you're different because of Christ in you. But that confession will strengthen you because it will encourage you to stand apart from the world and to pursue Christ with every fiber of your being. So that's how we begin to get a, uh, to, to uh, work out this good fight of the faith. And um, I think there's another thing that we need to do. And I, 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 y'all know this about me as, as we, and I think our church is doing really, really well in this sense. I don't think we could ever get it perfect. But I think one of the high values of our church life is to be people of the word. We, we have our logo and that floating head that some of y'all have identified. It's not meant to float necessarily, but it's up there. You get it. We have the, the priority of having minds for the truth. That is a key mark of a mature disciple, that we have minds for the truth, that we are devoting ourselves to the study of Scripture. Because if we don't devote ourselves to the study of Scripture, 
what authority really is there in our lives to which we can rightly cling and rightly be transformed. We have to be people of the Word. So that's another piece of this. And then uh, I've covered this already, is that we would encourage one another. Encourage one another in the faith. So I want to ask you a question this morning. Mason's going to come and do a reprise. Okay? I want to ask you this as a way of application this morning. How are you doing fighting the good fight of the faith? How are you doing fighting the good fight of the faith? Let me ask you this. Do you see the virtues being worked out in your life? Can, can you like do a checklist and say, yeah, Lord, I'm, I'm doing well pursuing godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. You hear how positive those things are? The opposite would be, no, Lord, I'm struggling. I'm waffling. I'm wavering. I'm I'm not walking in godliness. I'm struggling with sin. I'm not walking in faith. I'm relying on my own self, my own measure and means, rather than on Christ. Lord, I'm critical instead of being loving. Lord, I'm not being consistent, but I'm all over the map. I'm not being steadfast. Lord, I'm, I'm not being gentle. Instead, I'm being harsh and critical. See, it's a real easy checklist to see how you're doing in those things. And, and I'm not being, like, critical or, or condemning for sure because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But the, the, the responsibility that we have is to say, yes, Lord, I, I see I'm, those things are absent, and I need to confess, and I need to repent and turn to you. And I want to be a person that fights the good fight of the faith well. So I'm going to do these things. I'm going to be in the word. I'm going to be strengthened by the body. I'm going to continue to walk in a way that honors you, putting these things of the world to death so that I'm not satisfied with those things because I have a clear vision of who I am to be in Christ. See how all that plays together? It's an incredible charge that, that Paul has given Timothy. So how do you see Christ, uh, are these virtues working in you? Are they present? Let me ask you this, last question. What kind of things do you need to be more disciplined in to train yourself intentionally to fight the good fight of the faith? See, if we're not intentional and we don't commit to intentionality, what happens? We just drift. We just drift, and that's not the hope that Jesus wants for us. He wants us to be anchored in the security of who He is in us as we abide in Him and He abides in us. So, so with those thoughts in your, your mind, I want to ask you to do this. I just want to ask you to pray. I want you to pray and just ask the Lord this. Lord, will you reveal how I'm doing fighting the good fight of the faith or how I'm struggling? And will you help me to do the things right and make the changes in the right way so that I fight the good fight of the faith and honor you well. So let's bow together and and ask those questions. Heavenly Father, truly uh, 
I think the, this message is, is, uh, is so challenging. Um, where I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we can easily and quickly identify areas of struggle. Or areas where we know that there's weakness and deficiencies in our ability to fight the good fight of the faith. To cling to that uh, idea of this eternal perspective of, of heaven and who we will uh, see when we arrive there. Lord, it's much more than, because the promise of heaven is much more than the place. It's about the person of Jesus, our Redeemer. And Lord, I pray that for every one of us where we've identified weaknesses, Lord, that you would continue to help us to repent of those things and turn and be disciplined, to cling to that vision of, of Christ and who he's making us to be so that you are honored in our lives and that we find greater hope in, in, in being secure in your work in us. So Father, um, as we think through these things, Lord, may it not just be a flash pan message in, a, in that sense that, it, hey, we heard it, it's good today and we walk away, but Lord, may we meditate on these things. May we also look at how we are to put practical disciplines in our lives, like studying the word, like being involved in church, like being engaged in relationships to be encouraged. Lord, there's so many things so that these virtues are rightly developed in us and we put off the things of the flesh and fight the enemy well. Father, I do pray this. Lord, though this has not been a, entirely a message about salvation, Lord, the underlying theme is, that, is this. If we have not been saved because of the work of Christ and, and trusting Him by faith, Lord, there's no hope for these, these things to occur, these, these uh, virtues to be ours. We need to respond to Christ. And if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who doesn't know you yet as their Savior, I pray, Lord, that they would just have the boldness and courage and uh, just to, to speak to someone today before they leave to get uh, counsel about what it means to know Christ personally as their Savior. So, Father, I thank you for us being able to gather today in worship. Lord, we pray that as we stand and sing this reprise, that you would be honored. And as we leave here this week, we would uh, remember to connect in communities and, and uh, see lives change as we share the love and good news of Jesus Christ with others. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.